My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. That's the goal of it now, to be able to get to the point where I do still work because I, I love it, but um, I can spend a greater amount of my time living and you know helping other people live and, and enjoy their lives as well. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we continue the conversation with founder and development manager of Plus Ethos, Henry Lettingham. We delve into the impact that COVID-19 had on one of his deals, how he was able to find the best subdivision deals, why he decided to do subdivisions over various other development options and much, much more. The global pandemic of COVID-19 had a massive impact on a lot of people and we find out about the effect it had on Lettingham. I had another one and that was a sort of a more recent one which I wouldn't say is is my worst investing moment but it was definitely a stressful one and it, it occurred um, around the this pandemic um, that we're experiencing of COVID-19. I essentially... Um, had a project that I was going to settle on um, and it was leading up to settlement day and at that point I had gone unconditional on my finance um, because all of the the signs with this lender were good. Um, I believe that you know it, it's a profitable project and there was no um, there was no reason for them to um, not fund the deal. But as, as news of the pandemic sort of spread and it gathered momentum and the, the media um, sort of hysteria built, that lender uh, essentially pulled out of their finance offer. They said the, the market for, for them specifically is too uncertain and we won't be able to fund your purchase. So at that point, um, yeah, that was a real shock and... Um, I was in a position where the, the vendor for the property wasn't very willing to offer extensions. I got a small extension, um, but essentially I had to um, settle on the property somehow. So it, it kicked me into another gear. I overcame that um, and was able to settle by sort of hustling um, and, and just working day and night with other lenders um, to get the situation sorted but the, the lesson learned was 
you know, that um, in terms of the the risks um, out of left field, you know, I guess everyone thought that a pandemic was maybe not even on anyone's radar at that point, but it, it was realised in my instance, it became an issue and I had to deal with it. So I think while it was super stressful at the time and um, it's something that I will remember for the rest of my life, like I, I, I will have lots of um, either protections in my contracts now to deal with um, pandemics where we can essentially um, activate those conditions and, and ask for longer extensions. Um, but, yeah, that was a real uh, lesson. We delve into how he was able to eventually settle the property and why it was done this way. To give a bit more explanation around that, that um, project, I was in a position where the project, I was buying it with a DA and it, I, I had been working on it for a couple of months and I had put a significant amount of my own money into the, the project. So um, if I wasn't able to settle on that project, what happened um, with the DA um, it stays with the land. So essentially the owner of the land, um, if I didn't settle, would retain the benefit of the DA and my money um, that, you know, had assisted getting that DA would have benefited the owner. And so all of my work would have been for nothing. And in the REIQ um, purchase contracts, so the Queensland um, land purchase contracts, there's provisions for delay um, uh, or an acts of um, delay in the contract, but the, the remedy mechanism in there is for the contract to be terminated. And that's exactly what I didn't want to happen. Like I, I needed an extension so I could source an alternative lender um, and everything in the contract um, was essentially saying, well, this has happened so you can terminate and I, and I was at the point where I was like no I don't want to terminate I, I, I must continue this contract but I need to extend it because of these um, acts of nature being the pandemic that have occurred um, so what I what I um, was losing by that financier was pulling out that was a financier that was um, going to lend 70 percent so there was essentially you know a chunk of money um, i had a certain uh, i had 30 percent equity um, and the 70 percent lender had pulled out so i then had to scramble find another lender um, and in that environment um, it's still occurring now i guess um, the lenders are ratcheting back their LVRs. So, you know, I, I found a lender, um, they were able to do 65% LVR. So I had to reach out to um, some of my investing partners and increase my equity position um, through the assistance of my investors. The second issue I, I came up with once I had locked down the, um, the new lender that would come in and assist was that for this development, it's a nine lot subdivision, um, you need to get commercial valuations. Um, and I had one done with the previous lender, but that commercial valuation was only 
directed to the previous lender. And when I asked for the valuation to be assigned to this new incoming lender, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't assign it. Um, and that was essentially because of that valuer's uh, risk position. They, they saw that, you know, they had valued it before the uh, pandemic started and they were being told by their their professional indemnity insurers don't assign any um, valuations or don't do any new development valuations. So then the search became, I, I'd found a lender, but they needed a commercial valuation and I had been granted an extension of two weeks. So I essentially needed to get a new commercial valuation done, returned, um, and then loan documents drafted and created, signed, all done in two weeks. So the challenge then became, okay, we've got the lender, now let's find a valuer that is comfortable to visit site, do their due diligence, do their report and reissue it, you know, within a week so that I could leave the other week for the loan documentation to be drafted and, and issued and executed. Um, so it was literally, yeah, sort of a, a challenge a minute, but, um, you know, through the process of um, going into solicitor's offices on weekends, um, printing stuff, running to the bank, um, we, we got it done and um, we, we managed to settle on the property. So now the, the project is secured, the DA is there and it's, you know, it's an awesome project. Um, but, yeah, there was a big um, learning from what occurred with the pandemic, which I'll take for the rest of me, uh, for the rest of my um, development career, that's for sure. We dive into his subdivision and we discuss the changing market during this time and whether he can get a good return on investment. My general approach, um, if I'm looking at sites that are raw sites with no DA on them and and I will have to obtain the DA myself, I, I will only proceed on sites that have a 20% or plus um, profit margin. With the, this site, it already had a DA, so the, the planning risk element had been removed it was already approved we could know we knew there was nine lots and we just had to basically deal with the construction cost risk and the um the sales risk so um that's a 15 percent profit project and i think i wouldn't want to go lower than that if purchasing a site um of that scale with a da um the um, time frame for the project, it's a 12-month project and uh, at the moment it's just starting. So we foresee that there's there's definitely um, in the next couple of months there's going to be reduced um, consumer sentiment and anything that's going to be marketed in that period will have to be competitively marketed. But uh, I, I believe that, you know, in six to eight months, things will be back to maybe not where they were before, but people at least will um, know where they're sitting with their employment. They will know where their finances are heading and the routines, just the daily routines of what you can and can't do will be well-defined. So I think it will smooth out 
and um, that's why I um, believed in that project. It wasn't a project that you know needed to be constructed and sold this month or next month. Like there was a long time frame until um, sales and settlements needed to be brought on the market. We've heard about one of his worst investing moments and now we find out the moment where everything changed for the better. I would say that would be it. It was more that my mindset up until about sort of four years ago was I, I was a PAYG employee. Like I'd, I'd always had a boss and I'd always worked for someone and um, I, I don't know why but I just hadn't ever considered that I could do something that was wholly and solely of my own creation and, um, you know, I could work for myself doing something that I loved. But as, you know, four years ago, as those sort of light bulbs started to switch on, um, I'd say that was my biggest light bulb moment or aha moment where it was like, okay, you've worked for other people and, and you know, been a company man up until this point have a crack at something of your own um, because that way it can be wholly and solely yours. You know, your effort that you put in should correlate directly to the effort that comes out and, and you know, you can craft something that is um, to your standard and to your liking. So I'd say that was the biggest one followed closely by, yeah, wow, this property development stuff is my path to going um, going out on my own and being my own boss. Lettingham explains his mindset when he was starting up his property development business and how he wanted to gradually phase into it. I kind of structured it um, to phase it in. So I, my first project I did, which was a six-lot subdivision, I was fully employed in a day job. Um, so I essentially ran that project um, in the evenings, like when I when I get home after a day of work, I'd have dinner and then sort of punch out, you know, two to four hours worth of work in the evenings and then on weekends as well. Um, as I got that one um, almost completed, then I bought a second six-lot subdivision online and I was still working full-time. But then I, I knew I needed to... Um, have some guidance and some assistance with making the transition. So I started looking around for mentors um, and essentially linked up with an awesome mentor who helped me um, craft my exit plan from full-time work into full-time development. And um, it, it occurred over the period of about a year, year and a half. Um, so it was it was a planned process. With his experience in building the big commercial projects, Lenningham shares why he decided to go down the route of subdivisions rather than many available options. I wanted to just start start simple and um, then build, build from there. So for me, I believe that subdivisions are relatively low risk in the scheme of development because you're you're not um, putting a product, a built product, on there that you're having to um, essentially guess what the market uh, wants to buy 
Um, and I, I understand that you, there's a lot of research that goes into formulating the product that the market wants. But I, I at the moment, just want to keep it simple. Start with land subdivision, build that process up till it's a solid, you know, process. I can um, essentially fine tune it, and then once you know, three, four years down the track, um, if I believe I'm at a stage where putting a built product on on the land is a benefit to me and my investors, then. I'll, I'll take that step, but I just, um, as part of some of my mentoring, it was hammered into me, just keep keep your focus narrow, um, you know, don't look at all of the shiny options out there in terms of lots of fancy different development strategies, just get focused, um, get really good at one strategy and then branch out once you've nailed that. So I also see subdivision as having the benefit of other exit strategies. So, you know, if, if the land product um, isn't generating the interest that um, you need in terms of sales, you can take the next step of um, adding a built product and that might be just a, a normal dwelling. It might be a dual occupancy dwelling in some councils. It might be a rooming accommodation dwelling. But um, I, I like the fact that I was keeping strategy simple and also my costs low like I obviously don't have to um, get financing and fund building let's say six houses before I can start to pay down that um, so that was that was the two driving things I guess simplicity and overall um, funding ease coming up after the break we learn more about Henry Lettingham's strategy when it comes to subdivisions. My strategy now, like after I have educated myself and, and sort of learned from a lot of other way more knowledgeable people is that um, you need to understand the council area that you're working in. How some of the best deals are right there for everyone to find? I sort of had um, a bit of a misconception when I started um, educating myself that you know, I, I must get everything off market, and then I must, um, you know, I need to build up a big network of um, agents and, and deal finders to be able to get a profitable site. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Sharp, and you're listening to Property Investory. We learn more about the strategy behind his subdivisions and Lettingham explains how he's able to find the best deals for his subdivisions. My strategy now, like after I have educated myself and, and sort of learned from a lot of other way more knowledgeable people is that um, you need to understand the council area that you're working in and by understanding that you'll know the zoning of different land, you'll know the, the minimum and maximum requirements of lot, um, lot you know, density and sizes you can put on land. So once you have that knowledge, you can assess different sites and you can get a um, an educated um, but not conclusive view of what you could do to a piece of land. And there's lots of different approaches, but sort of the the one 
that I took on my first subdivision, to be specific about a project, is that um, that was a one-acre uh, property and the selling agent knew that it was capable of being subdivided but didn't know how many lots. Um, from my education at that point, I, I knew the same knew it could be subdivided, didn't know how many lots. Um, I had some initial chats with um, some of my project team, the town planner. They guided me to say, we we believe you can do four lots for sure. That's that's a given, given the council zoning and, um, and requirements. And then so I, on that basis, I got the project under my control or the, the property sorry, under my control by putting a purchase contract onto it with a due diligence period. And then in the due diligence period, that's essentially where you start getting really specific and speaking to council and finding out what they will um, generally approve in the case of the subject property. So that um, site was in Moreton Bay Regional Council in north brisbane and they have an awesome facility where you can book and have a pre-lodgement meeting but you don't have to pay any money for it they're free so all you have to do is book it in and wait about two weeks and then you can go into council um sit down with them and say this is the property i have um i would like to subdivide it we're thinking this many lots, what are your thoughts? And they will they'll give you a planning and an engineering view of the development of that site and they'll give you some written notes to take away from it. And that was the process I, I did for that first subdivision where um, I got the project, the site under my control. In the due diligence period, I met with council. Council guided me to say um, you can subdivide this into six lots however you if you do want to subdivide it into six lots you must provide a um, new piece of council infrastructure in the form of a, a new road so that was the point where the selling agent thought that the site could only um, have a yield of four lots but then i discovered i could actually get a yield of six lots um, so a, a greater um, profit, but then I had to factor out in how much it would cost me to build the road, and then that sort of process then takes off getting your engineering costings nutted out and, and um, worked out, and then assessing before your due diligence period ends whether you're comfortable with the um, due diligence you've done and whether you're going to proceed with the purchase. There is nothing like having experience and he talks to us about how his previous life in commercial construction has helped him find deals and understand if they will be profitable. Depending on what council I'm working in, I, I really um, insist on trying to get um, some consultation with council and getting their feedback um, and it, it, it's generally in the form of that pre-lodgement meeting. So at least if you... If you go to council with your intention, um, they can either sort of say, yes, we will support that generally. you They'll give you some feedback as well. I say, look, we'd support that, but you may have to add this element or you may have to compromise on that element. Um, or I've had this as well. I've taken sites to council and they've shot it down 
from the get-go and they've said no absolutely not we're not doing that and that's you know that's what you need to be aware of um, before you actually get in a position where you're um, unconditional on a, on a purchase of a property because you can end up um, yeah settling on a site that is not developable or you know instead of um, 10 lots which you imagine you could get you might only get five um, so yeah that is my sort of gold standard of due diligence doing all of the the costing um, and work with my project team but then also getting council consultation on what they will and won't support because they're at the end of the day they're the people that will be approving your um, uh, application for the development. We expect these successful property investors to have sophisticated ways of getting deals but sometimes the best deals are right there for everyone but you just need to know what to look for. All of my deals apart from one so far have just been out there on realestate.com. So I, I, I sort of had um, a bit of a misconception when I started um, educating myself that, you know, I, I must get everything off market and I must, um, you know, I need to build up a big network of um, agents and, and deal finders to be able to get a profitable site. But um, I was pleasantly surprised by, you know, um, the sites that I've found so far. 75% of them have just been out there and they've either been sites where um, people haven't gone to that level of due diligence, like they haven't sat down with the council um, and, and said, can we do this? And they've missed an opportunity. Um, or maybe it's a site where there's some um, issues that engineering-wise someone hasn't been able to solve, whereas the, the engineering team that I've worked with have been able to solve it. I've only um, had one project so far where it's come to me uh, essentially off-market. but. Um, that is a part of my business where previously I haven't had um, the the time to be able to build up those um, those connections because I was working full time. But now um, I'm starting that process and sort of developing a, a regular um, network of agents that um, yeah hopefully can bring some of those opportunities my way. Part of that as well with with my chosen strategy so my my focus is land subdivision as i mentioned but ideally i'm focusing on um, projects that are between five lots and 20 lots and i i purposely want to attack those projects because i, I believe that um the competition for those kind of sites is a bit thinner generally you know staying away from the splitters and two and three lot subdivisions there seems to be a lot of competition because that's the i guess the entry level um development site uh, and that you know people starting development generally um start out on those so you know there's a big section of the um I guess you'd call it beginner development market looking for those sites. And then there's a lot of bigger developers, way more experienced um, and knowledgeable than me that are attacking much bigger sites, 50, 100 lot sites. But by me focusing on, you know, just above the, um, the beginner people and below the 
um, the big boys, I hopefully can get that competitive advantage on the sites that I, I attack. Lettingham discusses his property portfolio and we find out how many subdivisions he's completed over the past few years. My business has only started this year, so it's literally only, um, you know, we're in April now, four months old. Um, so I've completed um, four projects to date and this um, next one, which is a nine lot subdivision, is sort of the next evolution, um, but that will be the first project with me working um, in the business full time. We delve into the motivating factor of the why behind choosing the path of property investing. I have a, um, a four-year plan and the sort of high-level view of that is is to um, help me get to a point with my personal wealth where I don't have to trade my time for money anymore and the, the um, intent of that is so that I can essentially help my friends and family around me um, get to the same level of wealth where, you know, if a pandemic hits, then there's no real stress. You, if you lose your job, then that's cool because you've got, a, you know, a portfolio or lots of money just as a nest egg in, in the bank. Um, and the overall intent is, you know, once, once I can help myself, I help my friends and family and then after that sort of the, the world's my oyster I can you know branch out into any um, I guess area that I, I choose but um, yeah it, it's definitely uh, that's what I've realized over the past I'd say four to five years that I realized that I was trading my time for money and a lot of the time was spent working and I wasn't really having much time to enjoy life. Um, and that's that's the goal of it now to be able to get to the point where I do still work because I, I love it, but um, I can spend a greater amount of my time living and you know helping other people live and, and enjoy their lives as well. Lettingham shares with us some of the people that have had the biggest impact on his successful career. Matt Jones definitely helped um, me greatly with um, joint ventures and and sort of opening myself up to them. I um, yeah, I've sort of taken part in lots of his seminars and education. Um, someone else who was sort of my most recent mentor um, is Rob Flux. So he's based in Brisbane and um, he runs the Property Developer Network. So. Um, Rob has monthly meetups um, in Brisbane that I was attending um, and then I reached out to him at the beginning of um, 2019 when I when I knew I wanted to sort of leave full-time work and I asked him if he um, offered mentoring and he um, came back with a course that he he has run very successfully and is running still now. It was called the Property Development Formula. And essentially that course was like a 12-month course that paired mentoring on specific property development um, strategies and techniques and, and education. But then it also paired another awesome um, element which I hadn't really thought of too much before and it was specifically on mindset. So um, back then when I did it, Rob was partnering with um, Tony Meredith, a great life coach 
Um, and that mentoring over 12 months was essentially lots of, um, you know, three or four times a month focusing on uh, a property-specific mentoring session and then a mindset session. And those two things um, sort of built my exit strategy. Um, and I, yeah, that is the real reason that I was able to um, leave my full-time job uh, when I did because w without that level of mentoring and that accountability, I believe I would have done it eventually, but I wouldn't have done it as soon as I, I have been able to. He provides some of his best book recommendations for us. I read a couple of years ago one called Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. Um, it's by T. Harv Ecker. And that was a really powerful book for me in just understanding um, wealth and how your money mindset or your money or your wealth sort of thermostat is created and, and set. Um, there was nothing really specific about property development in there, but that's a really awesome um, book just to get a high level understanding of how your mind works in relation to money and whether you've got a healthy or unhealthy relationship with it. Um, I read also um, a book by Steve McKnight, um, Zero to 130 Properties in Three and a Half Years. And although that, that book is sort of more buy and hold investing focused um, and it may be a little bit outdated, the, the concepts and just the, the story in there that Steve went through um, and his success was really inspiring. Like I, I read that and went, wow, like this guy has basically charged out and done this all on his own um, and has been able to make a great success of it. Um, so that was really inspiring. Um, and then one that I've just finished at the moment, which um, is a bit sort of more business-focused or marketing-focused, is called Sell Like Crazy by Sabri Subi. And that's um, sort of on um, marketing and digital branding. Um, and it's something that I had not a great deal of knowledge about before, but it's sort of a one-stop um, one-stop shop in terms of how to approach, you know, marketing and branding and bringing in customers to a new business. So that's, again, not property development focused, but really good for anyone that has their own business. If he could say anything to his past self from 10 years ago, what would it be? I would just say open your eyes up to other possibilities um, other than being you know, an employee. Like at that point 10 years ago, I hadn't even really thought about the concept of working for myself. Um, so I would just say start thinking about that because there's lots of other opportunities out there for you. Um, and in this day and age, it, it's getting easier and easier with the information out there for people to do their own thing. Um, I would also say start finding out about property because I I only really started researching and getting my head around property when I was about 34, 33 
So, like, I would have loved to have gone back in time to the time I'm, you know, 18, my first job, and just say start, you know, start educating yourself back then because as everyone sort of knows, the, the time that you're in the market is a massive advantage, even if you don't have the means to be doing much in the market at that time, just being in it helps a massive amount. So, um, yeah, I'd just say um, find out about property and um, think outside the box in terms of employment. You don't always have to work for someone else. How much of your success do you think is due to your skill, intelligence and hard work and how much of it is because of luck? I think about 90% is skill, hard work and intelligence. There's always an element of luck um, and sometimes that's bad luck. Like I was thinking about it in the sense of, you know, the pandemic that we've recently experienced, you know, no one really could foresee that. Um and in most cases, even though there's, you know, short-term challenges and hardship, it's only a small percentage. And if you just keep keep cracking like that skill, hard work and educating yourself and, and getting sort of more intelligent about what you're doing, that will always overcome it. So, um, yeah, I, I'm a big believer that um, hard work and, and drive overcomes luck. Um, and chance any, any day of the week. Thank you to Henry Lettingham, our guest on this episode of Property Investory. If you want to hear more about his journey, then visit our website at propertyinvestory.com. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tapiphone. 